Do remain standing and turn in your Bibles to the book of Judges, Judges chapter 11. We will be uh, reading verses 11, or chapter 11, verses 29 through 40, the end of the chapter. Judges 11, 29 through 40. Before we hear God's great word, His perfect word, let us go to Him in prayer. Great and awesome God, we come before you again, acknowledging that it is our desire to know your word truly, and we acknowledge that we need your light, we need your spirit, we need that ongoing mediation of Jesus Christ, that spirit-wrought ministry, that we might understand the glorious things in this text, that we might know you a bit better and worship you more faithfully. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This is Judges 11, verses 29 to the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of God. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aroer to the neighborhood of Minith, twenty cities, and as far as Abel-Keramim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me. For I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, go. Then she sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There's a phrase these days that, that seems to have gone out of style. It's a well-established phrase. It is, my word is my bond. The phrase goes back hundreds of years in the English language, and it's built likely on a Latin proverb. You, I'm sure, know what it means. Simply put, it means that you will always do what you have promised to do. It means that you are bound to what you say. You don't necessarily have to provide a written signature. We said it. We'll do it. Enough said. Enough done, right? What is in a, in a word these days? What is in a promise? It's as good as the promise maker. It's only as good as the promise maker. Too often, people today overcommit and underdeliver. They'll say, I'll do this, and I'll do that, I'll do this, and I'll do that, and I'll do all of that equally. Too often, we overcommit, underdeliver. Too often, we say we will be somewhere at a certain time, and when we're not, we offer really no apologies. Tardiness, we reason, is just you know, a sign of being you know, busy, bustling society. We can't be bothered with prompt arrival. Rare, but not gone, are the days when someone keeps his word. The reliable man is a rare man. We commend men and women today who keep their word. We know that men and women who keep their word are trustworthy. These trustworthy people are good for home. 
They are good for the church. They are good at the workplace. They are good in society. They are good in the nation to be reliable men and women and children, to be trustworthy. Is quite a blessing. But what if the person has made a vow, has made a promise, and it was a bad promise to begin with? Should it be kept? Is the person's conduct commendable who makes an awful vow but sees to its fulfillment? Now, this morning we continue our study in one of the uh, judges, the most controversial judge, perhaps. Maybe you think that title would be given to Samson, but I think. It's given rightly to Jephthah, as I began the series of the discussion of Jephthah last week. I said something to the effect of he is the most wildly misunderstood of the judges. He's a very controversial judge. We saw last week that he was an outcast. He was chosen to lead Israel in a fight against the Ammonites. You recall, he was outcast, and then... The Ammonites are pressing in on the Gileadites, and the question was, who will lead us? Who will be our head? Who's going to begin to fight against the Ammonites? He will be the head of all the inhabitants of the Gileadites. And that man ended up being Jephthah. We saw last time that he was historian, that he recounted the redemptive deeds of God the messengers of the king of Ammon. And he, he was the one who was chosen to fight. But we didn't get to the actual battle last week, which is what we see this week. But before he goes to the battle, before he fights the Ammonites, he goes to the Lord and he makes a vow. He makes a vow to the always faithful God. Through these verses, we see a man whose word was his bond. He kept his vow to a T. But two questions surely rise in our minds. Was this a tragic or godly vow? Is this a good vow? Or is this a bad vow? And if this was a bad vow, the second question is, should he have kept it? Surely, if this was a good vow, he ought to keep it. But if it was a bad one, a tragic one, should he go through with it? As we saw last week with Jephthah as biblical historian, redemptive head of the people, we explore now the, the nature of this vow, his obligation to keep the vow, and not mainly to vindicate the man. Though I hope, cards on the table here, he will be vindicated. As a man in heaven, he's already standing justified before the judge of all the earth, before God. So we don't need to vindicate him in that sense, as if we were little judges. No, but our study is to vindicate the man that he points us to. Of course, we know that every single judge, in one way or another, and perhaps in many ways, points us to the judge, Jesus Christ, the deliverer, the rescuer, Jesus Christ. And so to vindicate Jephthah here is to vindicate the man he points us to. Jesus Christ himself. Last week, you recall, no doubt, the main point. A judge, a true judge, is both historian of God's redemptive deeds and head of God's redeemed. This week, we come to another very similar main point, that a true judge swears to his own hurt in service to God. A true judge swears to his own hurt in service to God. Look with me again at verse 29. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. Verse 29, then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Something we've seen in our study of early judges. Think of Othniel. Think of others clothed with the Spirit. And so Jephthah's oath must be seen in light of this verse, verse 29. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. Jephthah is being guided by the Spirit. Jephthah is being led by the Spirit. Not only does this verse help us to understand this man and his actions, 
but also what we've seen already. If you weren't with us, if you need a quick review, then remember, he had some interactions with the Gileadites and the Ammonites. He was a mighty warrior. But again, he was initially an outcast because of his unseemly origin story. His mother was a prostitute, a harlot. The Gileadites urged him to be their head. They urged him to be used by God to defend them, to protect them from these Ammonites, to preserve the Gileadites. And graciously, you remember, he conceded. He identifies with the people. He identifies with the land as his own. He says that this land is my land. Though I was cast out, now I've been called back. And this land, which people did not consider my land, has become my land. This fight has become my fight. This people has become my people. They are me. We're together. We're united. And this way, his interaction with the Gileadites displayed God's interaction with the Israelites earlier in that chapter. And he also, we recall, demonstrated an intimate knowledge of God's redemptive history. And let's face it, he knew God's dealings with Israel, with the Amorites and the Ammonites, much better than we do. Last week, there was quite a bit of a, of a history lesson I had to unravel, and, and that was a bit hard to go through these details. And perhaps some of it are still a little murky in our minds. But they were not murky in Jephthah's mind. He knew the history of God's redemption. He knew God's grace. He knew God's fight. He knew God's love, his sustaining power. And so Jephthah's defects weren't actually his own. They weren't because of his own sinfulness, though, of course, he was a sinner. Remember, they were, the defects were his dad's. The truth is, his father never should have lain with that prostitute. There, should have, there never should have been that unholy union. And as head of the people, you recall that he asserted their innocence. He said, this is our land. This was given to us hundreds of years ago. We're innocent. Don't come after us. He also appealed to the righteousness of God. He says, the Lord judge between us. It would be unjust for you to come against us. But if you're going to come up against us, it'll be just if we then defend ourselves and take you down. And Jephthah began his judgeship in humble prayer before God. Something I didn't draw out last week. But verse 11 says that he spoke all his words before the Lord at Mizpah. What does that mean? But that he bathes his ministry in prayer. That he comes boldly before the throne of grace. Someone who has the spirit of the Lord upon him goes to the one through the mediation of the spirit. Pray for God's success, to pray for victory. Is that the picture so far that you've heard of the man Jephthah? I suspect not. But it is possible to start well and end poorly, isn't it? And that's not out of the realm of possibility. We know people who make a profession of faith and they don't persevere to the end. We know that people, through because of trials, because of the difficulty, the hardships of life, because of habitual sin, whatever it is, they start the fight well, but they don't end it well. That's not to say that they lose their salvation. We know that God preserves all of his elect. God preserves all of his people, and so they persevere. But we know that there are many who profess faith, but don't possess faith. We also know many who begin a ministry, but don't end it well. Perhaps Elijah comes to mind. Started a very powerful ministry, but didn't end on top. Ended kind of defeated. So, is that the case with Jephthah? Is he starting his ministry well, his judgeship well, but just not ending well? And not every vow is a godly vow. But Jephthah is in good company. Recall Jacob's vow in Genesis 28. When God gave Jacob a vision, the Lord promised Jacob a land. 
and offspring like the dust of the earth, very similar to what God had promised Abraham. And in verse 20 of chapter 28 of Genesis, Jacob vows, if God will be with me, provide for me, so that I come in peace to my father's land, then the Lord shall be my God. God will be with me. He then sets up a pillar to symbolize God's presence there. He then promises to tithe to the Lord from the ample provisions that he knows the Lord will give him. Jacob is not making a bargain with the Lord. I'll believe in you if you give me a victory. That's not what he's doing. He's making his faith known before God. He knows that the Lord will bring him peace. He knows that Jacob himself will return to his father's land in peace. He knows he's going to receive ample provisions from the Lord himself, and so he will give a tithe of those. He knows that the Lord is worthy to be worshipped, and that's why he sets up a pillar to worship him. And does anyone seriously challenge Jacob here and say that he is tempting God? Well, if you wouldn't say that of Jacob, I would submit to you, you shouldn't say that to Jephthah either and his vow. And so let's consider Jephthah's vow. It's similar to Jacob's vow, and it is made with that same spirit. The object of this vow is a godly object. Do you notice what the text says? He made a vow to the Lord. Now, if you're going to make a vow to anyone other than the Lord, the kind of vow that Jephthah makes here, that's a really bad vow. Don't make that vow. Ungodly vow, tragic vow, foolish vow, rash vow. Avoid that kind of vow. Don't you ever make that kind of vow. But if there is one person to whom you could make a godly vow, wouldn't it be God himself? And so here we have it. He makes a vow to the Lord. He has a godly object in mind. But what about his request? Is this request a godly request? What is he saying? If you will give me the Ammonites into my hand, so we could boil that request down, give me the Ammonites. Is that a godly request? Should Jephthah, as judge, as head, as historian, ask for the Ammonites? How about I ask you all? You could say out loud. Yes or no? Should he have asked for the Ammonites? Yes. A thousand times, yes. The Ammonites were wicked enemies, as the historian demonstrated. And they were coming after the Israelites. They were coming after the Gileadites. And so, Jephthah says, Lord, these people are coming against your people. Will you please give them into my hand? And he does. It was right to ask for victory here. It's always right for the Christian to ask God for victory over the enemies. Unless we're going to forget that third office of Christ as mediator, his king. As I even pray, he subdues all of his and our enemies. Of course, he subdues the enemies nowadays differently from how he subdued them in Jephthah's day. We're not going out and taking literal swords and conquering nations by murdering people or killing people. We're not doing that. But with the gospel, the gospel that pierces the heart. It's a godly request. Give me the Ammonites. What about his faith? Is this a a godly faith? What does he say? When I return in peace. He knows that God will use him mightily. He makes this vow knowing he's going to return in peace. Very similar to what Jacob had said. If God will be with me, provide for me so that I come in peace to my father's land. And so he says here, when I return in peace from the Ammonites. It's very similar to Abraham and Isaac, isn't it? When, he said, when Abraham said, the boy and I will return. This is before he ascended Mount Moriah. He knew that he would come back. He knew that not only he would come back, but that his son Isaac would return. He knew the Lord would provide. That was a godly faith that Abraham had. And it's the same kind of faith that years later, Jephthah, led by the Spirit, has. 
really, it's sacrifice that is the most controversial. Is this a godly sacrifice? He will offer a burnt offering, which is an acceptable offering. As we all know, this is the first of the five major Levitical offerings set forth in the first six chapters of Leviticus. And the burnt offering is that regular offering that is given every single day, morning and evening, when the, when the tabernacle was there and the temple was there. And we'll look at the nature of the sacrifice in a little bit. But a burnt offering was an acceptable offering. It was a good sacrifice. This is not something that is deviating, you know, that's, totally un, that's totally foreign to the other sacrifices. Where you say, Jeff, have you forgotten the regular principle for worship? This is not among those offerings. No, the man knew the kind of offering that you can, that you can give to the Lord. And here he's saying, I will give this, I will give a burnt offering to you, O God. And Psalm 66 connects vows and sacrifices. In verse 13, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I'll perform my vows to you. And so it's not foreign, it's not uncommon for someone, for the offerant, to have vows and offerings given to God at the same time. And that's what we have here. From close inspection then, so far we see that Jephthah, who's led by the Spirit, makes a vow. And Spirit-led vows are the only kind of vows that anyone ever ought to make. Don't think you can make a vow apart from the guidance of the Spirit, apart from the grace of the Spirit. And Spirit-led vows are the vows that you should keep. And you should keep even to your own hurt. Look with me at verses 32 and 33. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aroer to the neighborhood of Minith, 20 cities, and as far as abel Keramim with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. So more to this story is the spirit's success that God grants to Jephthah's cause. Jephthah's vow is a righteous vow. And because of this, the all-knowing Lord ensures that Jephthah will be successful. The Lord gave the Ammonites into the hands of Jephthah. We see that. The enemies are subdued. God grants him success, gives Jephthah a victory. God leads Jephthah into this battle and then causes Jephthah to succeed in this battle. And for what? Only to allow Jephthah to give his, dead, his daughter's dead body to the Lord? Back into the Lord's hands? Well, that's how some would want us to believe. The Lord who, who stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac, the Lord who abominates child sacrifice, now allows a military victory of over 20, of 20 Ammonite cities, which victory would ensure, because the Lord knows everything, it would ensure the death of Jephthah's daughter. Is the Lord leading Jephthah and then causing Jephthah to succeed only to cause a great blemish upon his glorious name? And so we really have two options, two ways of understanding Jephthah and his daughter. Either, here we have a, a rash man who is a thoughtless man, who is not caring that his family could walk out of the house, who succeeds in the fight against Ammon by bribing God. He then goes home. He mourns his thoughtlessness. He convinces his submissive but sinfully foolish daughter to die. And then they mourn her soon death for two months. After that time, he kills her. He burns her. He offers an abominable child sacrifice to God. And then the people of God remember this abomination for years and years. Because that's the kind of thing you want to remember. And then, to, to uh, you know, top it off, the Holy Lord God puts this man in the great hall of faith forever to be remembered. That's one way to understand it. And I will tell you, that's the, ma that's the majority interpretation of this man. And let me tell you, that'll preach. It really will. This could be a sign of the devolution of the judges, the devolution of Israel. It could preach that way. It has preached that way. But I don't think it ought to. 
So that's one way of understanding. The other way is, here's a man who's full of the Holy Spirit, who's led by the Spirit, who prays Spirit-led prayers, and as a historian, he shows his intimate knowledge of the Lord's redemptive work, which we've seen. As Spirit-led historian, he knew well the law of Moses, which law forbids child sacrifice, mind you. As head, he walks by faith. He vows a godly vow that is both thoughtful and good. He does this in the spirit of his father Jacob before him. And he does this knowing that animals could walk out to greet him. And as head, he leads the Israelites to a spirit-sanctioned military victory. God delivers the people by honoring Jephthah's humble request. Jephthah, who succeeds by the hand of the Lord, comes home, mourns that his daughter, his only daughter, and only chance at raising a godly offspring, will now be perpetually dedicated to the tabernacle. And his daughter, who is wise, who is obedient, who is a godly daughter, holds him to this vow, binds her dad's conscience and says, keep that vow. And then she mourns her new life, that of never being able to raise up offspring. She mourns for two months, and her faithfulness is celebrated for years and years. Now, I don't always part with Calvin. In fact, I rarely do. But when I do, it's because he's wrong. When he says, Jephthah, hasty in making a foolish vow, and too obstinate in performing it, marred the finest victory by the cruel death of his own daughter. I love Calvin, as you guys know. Some of you know. My dissertation is on the man, okay? But this interpretation is very much in line with what many have seen. But that second way of understanding Jephthah, I think, is the preferred way. And God actually vindicates the man. He vindicates the man in Hebrews 11.32. And what more shall I say? For time would, fa- would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Of course, that does not mean that every single action that every judge here does is God-glorifying. That is approved by God. Nobody's saying that. When you encapsulate the life of each of these men, it's a life of faith. It's a life of all-in devotion to the Lord, of loyalty, of faithfulness to God, because this faith is a gift from God, and then it is exercised in faithfulness to the Lord who gave eternal life to them. And so Jephthah is put in the company of great men of faith like David and Samuel. Jephthah has faith in the Lord and so conquers the Ammonite kingdom. Jephthah trusts in the justice of God and so enforces justice through the Spirit of God. The Scripture vindicates the man. The Scripture vindicates his daughter. The Scripture vindicates his daughter's companions who celebrate with her. And then the Scripture vindicates God himself. The tragedy, dear ones, is not in Jephthah's making the vow, but in our making Jephthah out to be a brainless, godless, spiritless judge. This man was a godly man. This man was an honorable man. This man was a biblical man. This man was a man who made a godly vow, but it was one so very costly to his life personally and the life of his daughter, but it was done in service to the Lord as he keeps it to the end. And this, again, is important because as judge who is devoting himself to the Lord, who's devoting his daughter to God, points us to Jesus. Again, to defend Jephthah here is to defend Jesus. To vindicate the first is to vindicate the second. Verse 34. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, And behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. This spirit-led, godly man has a godly seed. And this seed is both earthly and spiritual. The man had only one daughter, but her faithfulness was better 
than a thousand sons. It isn't just Jephthah who swears to his unhurt, but his daughter, his only daughter, well taught by her spirit-led father, who submits to their God and their Redeemer. Surely you see the parallels between Abraham and Isaac here, don't you? Abraham offers Isaac, his son, unto the Lord in full devotion to God. And not only Abraham, but Isaac himself. Yes, we ought to commend the kind of faith that Abraham had. After all, he is the father of the faithful. His faith was a godly faith. His devotion to the Lord was a godly devotion to the Lord. But so was Isaac's. Isaac, who ascended Mount Moriah with his dad. Isaac, who held the wood. Isaac, who allowed himself to be bound. Yes, Isaac's faith is to be commended as well. Not only is Jephthah's faith, but Jephthah's daughter, her faith is to be commended as well. Remember, God says to Abraham, you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. That precious child of the promise. You are willing to give that child to me, to devote that child to me. It's the same thing we see here. Jephthah willing to give his daughter, his only daughter, his much beloved daughter to the Lord. And as soon as Jephthah sees her coming out of the house, he tears his clothes and he tells her the vow that he had made. That must have been a hard moment. But what does she say? Does she say, don't worry, Dad. You made a stupid vow. We don't need to keep it. No. Do to me what you have vowed to the Lord. Keep the vow, Dad. It was a good vow. Keep it. Give me some time to lament. Give me some time to mourn. Her faith in the Lord is likewise to be imitated as she submits to her godly dad, as she, more importantly, submits to God himself. So then why does Jephthah mourn? Why does he tear his clothes? It's because he had only one daughter, his only daughter. He had no no sons. She was his only hope for raising a godly seed. Where's Mama Jephthah here? Nobody knows. He can't have another child with her. He doesn't have any sons to carry on his name. It's just his last hope. Daughter of Jephthah, who could carry on the family name, who could carry on not just the family name, but that intimate knowledge of God's redemptive deeds to tell her husband, to tell their children. She doesn't have, she won't have that that joy of knowing a man and and having a man as her husband, where they can go together, where she could be that helpmeet. It's impossible now for her to be that excellent wife that is rare to find, to be the glory of the head of the head, to be that beautiful crown upon her husband's head. She will never know what it's like to have a child. She will never know what it's like to have that blessing, that heritage, that reward, that quiver full of children that she can then instruct in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There will be no Mother's Day for Jephthah's daughter. All those things that Naomi wished for Orpah and Ruth prayed for, even pronounced that maternal benediction upon them for. No. You don't get to have that, Jephthah's daughter. She will forever be a virgin. She will only be serving in the tabernacle always. Which sounds like a bad thing, but it isn't. (laughs) Jephthah devotes his only daughter to the Lord, and she agrees. Leviticus 27, 28 says, But no devoted thing that a man devotes to the Lord, of anything that he has, whether man or beast, 
or of his inherited field shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. In other words, if you give someone or something to the Lord, you cannot take that back. You cannot ransom that. You cannot redeem that. You cannot say, I'm sorry, I didn't actually mean that. Can we make a deal, Lord? None of that. Everything that you give as devoted to the Lord is given to God. And you can't take anything back. You can't use anything again. It's a burnt offering for a reason. Now, if it's an animal sacrifice, that means all of the animal is given to the Lord. And there are some sacrifices that the offerant will give that he will also not give entirely of, that he will have some that he might eat with his family, with the, the church, a fellowship meal. But that's not what the burnt offering is. It's everything is consumed and given to the Lord. Everything is devoted to the Lord. There's no possibility of ransoming, redeeming anything back of Jephthah. All of her life, will, of Jephthah's daughter, all of her life will be given to the Lord. And so Jephthah gives his whole daughter to the Lord, and she gives her whole self to the Lord. And the focus of this text is on the loss of her virginity, not on any death of the girl. Verses 37 and 38 say, So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity. I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then she, de- then she sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. Towards the end of 39, it says, She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel. She had never known a man. She, she weeps for her virginity. She mourns because of her virginity. Not because virginity in itself is a bad thing, but for someone who desires to have a husband, someone who desires to have children. You don't want to stay a virgin forever. You want to have a husband. You want to have kids. So now to be denied that, to, to, be, to, to lose that, is cause for lamentation, is cause for a two-month mourning. Like Hannah with Samuel, or like Samson's parents with Samson, this daughter is given over entirely to the Lord. And Exodus 38, 8 tells us that there are women ministering in the tabernacle's entrance. So there are already women in the tabernacle serving the Lord. And Charles Simeon says, Had she been consigned to death, she would rather have bewailed her premature death and not merely her virginity. Hopefully that stands out. Why would she be mourning her virginity if really the bigger thing, the death, is what's going to happen? Did you notice nowhere does this text mention that he actually killed his daughter. And most importantly, we cannot miss this. The author here even contrasts the people of God with the people of Ammon. As you remember from last week, Moloch was Ammon's god. And what is Moloch known for? Heard it, child sacrifice. Is Jephthah a Moloch worshiper? No. He has one who is led by the Spirit. One who bathes his ministry in the Spirit. One who is given military success by the Spirit. Judah in Jeremiah's day, in Jeremiah 32, 35, it says, They built the high places of Baal in the valley of the son of Hinnom to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch, though I did not command them, nor did it enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. It doesn't even enter the omniscient mind to do that. It is so abominable. It is so awful. It is so unthinkable. But are we to think that God delivers his people from the Moloch-loving Ammonites only to deliver them out or through the hands of this functional Moloch worshiper in Jephthah? We're just trading one child sacrifice for another. Perish the thought. But there is one final Point of controversy, confusion perhaps, verse 40, that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. So is this an annual four-day lamentation of the daughter? Pun intended here, 
this word choice of lament is a lamentable one. It can mean lament if you decide on the front end that Jephthah killed his daughter. But the word actually occurs only one other time, and in the book of Judges, and it's not a time of lamentation. Judges 5.11 in Deborah's song, to the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat, that's the word, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Shall we say that means lament? There they, repeat, they, they lament the righteous triumphs of the Lord. There they lament the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Oh, those righteous deeds of God are surely lamentable. No. They are worthy of recounting. They are worthy of telling at, at the dinner table. As you, as you walk out of the house, you come into the house. As you walk, on, as you walk along the way, you say, this is what God has done. Let me recount these to you. It's kind of like what Jephthah did to the messengers, the king of Ammon. Let me recount to you God's redemptive deeds. And so it means here to recount God's work through someone. Year after year, this faithful daughter was praised for her wholehearted service to the Lord. This is an annual commemoration, an annual celebration of what God has done and of a person's devotion to God. So Jephthah gave up his earthly seed. Jephthah devoted his earthly seed for a heavenly one. He had no more biological offspring, but like Abraham and Isaac, Jephthah and his daughter had a spiritual offspring that would recount God's faithfulness to his people each year. Jephthah swore to his own herd, and she did to hers, and they end up with no surviving offspring. Jephthah, then, is like that foreigner in Isaiah 56, 3 through 5, like the eunuch who is fully devoted to God. The one who holds fast to the covenant of the Lord shall never say, I am a dry tree, or the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Instead, this wholehearted devotion is graciously rewarded with a monument and a name better than sons and daughters, with an everlasting name that will never be cut off, the name of the Lord, the name of Christ, which is a name above all names which is the most worthy name, which is the most powerful name, the most majestic, the most gracious, the most gentle, the most meek, the most loving, the most compassionate name, the most forgiving, the most kind, the most patient, the most self-controlled name, Jesus Christ. Do you see, dear ones, the costliness of this vow-keeping? And do you see how this account points us to Christ? The Son of God swore to his Father that he would fulfill every jot and tittle. He would not leave this earth until all of Moses was kept. Every single bit of the law of God would be fulfilled. The Son, enjoying eternal fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, agrees to come to earth. He entrusts his life to the Father as he becomes a babe. As he entrusts his life to his father as he grows up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, in wisdom, in stature, favor with God, favor with men. As he gives the gospel, as he declares the kingdom of God, as he declares himself to people. As he does miracle after miracle, as he sets people free from their sins. As he opens the eyes of the blind, those both physical and spiritual blind. As he walks on water, as he feeds thousands, as he raises people from the dead, he's doing all this, not for himself, but for his father, his father who sent him, because he wants to be devoted to his father in all that he does, in all that he says, everything that he is moved by, to glorify the father, and not just to glorify the father, but to in glorifying the Father, to save a lost people, to redeem a people entrenched in their sin, dead in their trespasses and sins, full of iniquity, full of hatred and hostility toward God, having no thought, having no good thought, rather, of God, but being at enmity with God. Jesus, compassionate, loving, kind, gracious, 
lives. Fulfills every aspect of the law of God. And he gives his life. He allows his life to be bound on the cross. He allows his hands to be nailed. He allows his feet to be nailed to that cross. He allows himself to be lifted up. He allows his body to be plunged with a spear, to be thrusted through with a spear. And then he gives up his spirit. Into your hands do I commit my spirit, O Father. Because he was going to be devoted to the Father from start to finish. And the Father has rewarded his Son with innumerable spiritual seed. With you and me. And now the Son wisely and righteously devotes us, his spiritual children, to full service to the Lord. As Jephthah did with his daughter, Jesus does with us. He devotes us to the Father. God is seeking true worshipers. And that's why Christ came. Not merely to save you from your sin, to save you from an eternal wrath of God, but that you would be a worshiper of the Lord. That you would give all that you are, that you would say everything in honor and praise to the Lord himself. That you would worship him every second of the day because he alone is worthy. And so we, in the New Testament, have over and over that call for us to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And we do that not with any way of, of, of being an acceptable sacrifice by which we could be justified. And say, look at my sacrifice, God. Look at how I've devoted myself to you. Now am I worthy? No, you are never worthy to come into his presence. But there is one who is. It's Jesus Christ. His sacrifice is worthy. And so now we give our lives to our God because we love God. Because we can think of nothing but full allegiance to God. This is the life of the Christian. This is the life of the new heart. This is the life of the circumcised heart. We are living sacrifices. Say no more of this sin. No more of this allure of, of the world. No more of these temptations from the devil. I don't want any of them. And when I do, oh Lord, by your spirit, crush that desire. Cause me to be more and more devoted to you. Godly men and women make and keep godly vows despite temporary hurt. As we saw in Psalm 15, who shall ascend the holy mountain? He who would swear to his own hurt. In Proverbs 20, verse 15, it is a snare to say rashly it is holy and to reflect only after making vows. Some in our own church have sworn to their own hurt. Think recently, somewhat recently, of the the whole COVID vaccine, and in the, the military. And there are some in this church that said, I cannot in good conscience, in faith to God, I cannot take this vaccine. I cannot allow this to enter my body for whatever reason. And if that means I'm kicked out of the military, and so be it. Or in institutions, school institutions, or, or employment, there is that imposition that you have to acknowledge someone's gender, even though it is contrary to the clear biological fact. You have to call them with that pronoun. You say, no, I must obey God over man. And I'll find ways to, to show you love, compassion. But my allegiance isn't to you, it is to God. My allegiance isn't to this workplace to this educational institution, but to God himself. Did this school die for me? Did, did my boss, was he crucified for me? Was he raised for me? No. There's one. It is to Jesus that I devote myself. Let us, dear spiritual seed of God, keep godly vows that we make, even if it hurts for a time. Every, every pastor before he becomes a pastor, takes ordination vows. 
Do I promise to take charge of this congregation to endeavor faithfully to discharge all the duties of a pastor? Implication is, whatever that will cost me. Yes. It's a lot of duties of a pastor. It's a lot of an undertaking for a congregation. Who cares what size it is? A lot of concerns. Do you endeavor faithfully to discharge all the duties of a pastor? Or you, this congregation, vows to a pastor, do you promise to receive the pastor? Do you promise to receive the word of truth from his mouth with meekness and love? Do you promise to submit to him? Do you promise to encourage him? Do you promise to assist him? Whatever it'll cost you. For those who want to be an elder or a deacon, do you believe the scriptures? Do you receive the confession and catechisms? Do you approve of the form of government and discipline the PCA? Do you accept the office of ruling elder? Do you accept the office of a deacon and perform all the duties of the office faithfully? Do you promise subjection to your brothers and Lord? Do you promise to strive for purity, peace, unity, and the edification of the church? Whatever it'll cost you. Do you want to be a member? Do you know that you're a sinner? Do you trust in Christ alone? Do you rely on the Holy Spirit? Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work? Do you submit to the government and discipline of the church? And do you promise to study its purity and peace? Whatever it'll cost you. Or marriage vows. I heard some couples about to celebrate 61 years of marriage. Do you promise to have this man as your husband? Do you promise to have this woman as your wife? To live with them after God's commandments? to love them, to cherish them, to honor them, to obey them, whatever it'll cost you. Oh, that the world would be full of Jephthahs. Oh, that it would teem with Jephthah's daughters. And oh, that the world would be full of Christians devoted wholly to Christ. And oh, for the daily grace from God to be men and women whose word is our bond. A vow to God to take our lives and let them be wholly consecrated to him. In the end, our spirits profit eternally as we give them up in wholehearted service to God. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious God, we thank you for how you show your grace. We thank you for how you have given us your son who gave up his life for us, who gave who died for us, who rose from the dead for us, for our justification, that we might be true worshipers, that we might be devoted to you, that we might obey all the commandments that you have taught us to keep because we love you and because you love us. We pray now that your spirit who guided Jephthah, who led Jephthah, who granted Jephthah success, we pray that that same spirit in this fullness of time, would be with us, would transform us from one degree of glory to another. Not that our name would be glorified, but that yours, O Lord, would. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.